0: welcome to champagne problems we are your hosts robbie shaw and patrick Balsley. thank you for joining us on this journey as we explore our mental health well-being performance and longevity and how our relationships with alcohol can influence each no shame no
1: labeling no judgment just curiosity Welcome back, everybody. We have a special episode today. It's just me, Patrick Balsley, and our guest, Dr. Brad Reedy. Dr. Brad Reedy is the co-owner and clinical director of Evoke Therapy Programs, an experientially based therapy program for adolescents, young adults, and families. Brad's research and clinical experience includes parenting issues, attachment, adults and adolescents with substance use issues, developmental psychology, children suffering with grief and loss, and therapeutic supervision. He is a prolific public speaker and has been invited to deliver keynote addresses at conferences all over the world. He is often a guest on nationally syndicated radio shows and has been asked to speak at universities on experiential therapy, mental health, childhood issues, parenting, and organizational health. He is the host of the podcast Finding You, an Evoke Therapy podcast, and after years as a parent educator, having broadcasted over 1,100 webinars on parent and family issues, Brad released the book, The Journey of the Heroic Parent, Your Child's Struggle and the Road Home. His most recent book, The Audacity to Be You, Learning to Love Your Horrible, Rotten Self, was released in February of 2020. I'm really excited about this conversation. Let's go to Dr. Reedy. Dr. Brad Reedy, welcome to Champagne Problems. Very glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I've been really pumped about this, man. Um, shout out to our mutual friend, Stephanie Zwilling, for uh, for connecting us. John Tobias is also a buddy of mine that I connected with a few years ago that kind of introduced me to your stuff. And uh don't stay in t- too much in touch with him anymore, but Zwilling's been a, a huge support of mine and, and a good friend. And, Love them uh, both. Love them both. Yeah, yeah, I wanted to kind of give the listeners a quick, uh, heads up in terms of why, um, why I'm doing this episode with you, um, by myself today. Um, I was introduced to your work, uh, about a year and a half ago through, I think through John and through some other mutual friends and, um, I've really dug into, to both of your books, um, journey of the heroic parent and the audacity to be you both are required reading for the staff and, uh, at my, at, at my program and, um, uh, and, and your podcast has not only had a profound impact on my personal life and my relationship with my wife and kids and my own therapeutic process, but I also give it to all, I mean, I, I share it with all the parents that I work with and, um, and I, I just I wanted to thank you from the bottom of my heart for for all the work that you've done over the last 30 years, not only in your personal journey, but but what you've created and all the families that you've helped. And the fact that you, you know started your podcast 15 years ago and have open sourced this information and this content to to the world, man, and, and I wish I would have found it sooner um but I guess it was it was perfect timing for me and for my my process and where I was at um professionally too and I just wanted to thank you, man, and I wanted wanted to thank you for taking the time to come on today. So um I really appreciate you and everything you've done.
0: I, I thank you you're welcome and, and thanks for, for sharing that. I I know for me the the journey is Sharing with people what I learned that closes the circle, right? Like when my when I thank my therapist, which I, I share this, I, it comes up for me now and again. Well, I have a, a, an emotional experience thanking my therapist for the 24 years that we've been working together, and um, she said so many times, "I'm just sharing something. I'm just doing something for you that somebody did for me." So I'm just passing it along, and I really appreciate your mission and your podcast because I love how you guys are are tackling ambiguity and i think there's so many ideas in the therapeutic world um that that, that purport to have the answer the definitive answer the line gets drawn very clearly and i love the facts that you the the fact that you guys explore that gray area and give people a chance to to show up as they are and to be seen and heard through, through what you share so thank you the, the love is mutual. I appreciate it.
1: So I thought kind of the structure today uh, we kind of roll with. Uh, I want to hear from you because you so beautifully and eloquently um, can articulate kind of what developmental psychology is. I'd like to dive into that attachment theory. How our early relationships in life kind of set the blueprint and the tone for all of our relationships moving forward forward. Um, and I have one quote, and I think it was actually from one of your podcasts that I had to stop and rewind, and then I actually it, it had such a profound, it hit me so hard that I went back and I and I and I wrote it down, and because um, I think it's it's just it, it was the perfect description of 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 how all this starts with us. We don't have a common understanding of of ourselves, like we there is no framework. To work from, and and I think if some of this developmental psychology and attachment theory stuff was taught in schools or or even at home, if we just had a basic understanding of this stuff as a society, um, we would be in such better shape if we could come to a common understanding of this stuff. And now with all the research and and all the evidence behind it, I just I, I think it, the conversations like this and your work and your podcast. I just, I wish everybody, I just, I want to like scream this stuff from the mm-hmm. rooftops and I want to be like, we all need to know this stuff because it right. makes so much sense. And it, it makes so much sense of everything else once you kind of have the, the foundation. Um, so I want to hear it from you, but I'm going to read this quote first and it, and it might be a lot and, but maybe you can unpack it. You said, when a baby cries, they are expressing a need. If babies' needs don't get met, they don't stop crying, they stop needing. They take the part of themselves that needs and they kill it psychologically. It goes into the unconscious and they learn how to not feel. The nerve of the unmet need is too intolerable for the child. It's of dread that nobody is going to come for me, that nobody is going to save me. Those parts of us later in life that have been locked in a box and repressed start screaming for attention and they come out as mental illness. They come out in symptoms of rage, addiction, and self-harm. In response to this as parents, the gold is the fact that we can't get it right. We will always come up short and this will be a lifelong process of improving. And trying to do the best that we can.
0: Yeah, thank you. I mean, even even hearing that gives me chills. Me too, because I, I can relate to it. You know, um, the the process of being a human, of raising humans, uh, of being raised by humans is is an incredibly complex process. And I think we try to we try to reduce the idea of development of, of trauma, of healing, of mental illness and mental health to these events, right? We, we try to say, what, what happened to you? There's a book, What Happened to You, yeah. that, that, that tries to identify the, these triggers or these traumas. But what I've learned, in fact, it goes all the way back to my dissertation from, from graduate school. What I've learned personally, what I've learned professionally from observing it at close proximity, and of course, what I've learned from my reading is, it's the, the thousands and millions of invisible interactions between parent and child, between the child and its environment that begins to shape the child and so yes that quote is the the child just doesn't stop feeling but they it doesn't stop crying but they stop feeling because it's it's too excruciating to suffer the unmet need and so you have to kill that part you have to you have to mute that part you have to take that part and and split it off as the technical term and put it in a box um and and hide it away so that it doesn't torment you with this constant unmet need this constant festering wound and then of course, eventually in our lives, that, that, that energy that gets locked away starts to leak, that starts to come out and it comes out in all these symptomatic ways and it's universal. And that's why, especially the talk around trauma these, these days is so two-dimensional. It's this idea that, that the events are the things and it's not the events. It's how everybody around you responded to you during these events. It's how everybody around you supported you doing this event so you might have abuse i mean that that's a tragic uh, reality that you might have abuse but that's not the predictor of whether or not you're going to develop significant symptomology later on in life it's how the people the big people i like to say around you were able to allow you to feel to contain you to hold that pain along with you to support you to encourage you in, in some part to educate you so it's the it's the air that you breathe it's the water that you're you're swimming in it's the soup that you're cooked in Is what i like to say and so the 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 idea of trauma being a discrete event developmental psychology attachment theory tells us that it's much much more complex than that that it's it's when 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 a therapist asks a client tell me about an early memory or when a when a client shares with a therapist about an early memory or a memory from childhood that is acutely painful and traumatic the reason that those stories are important is because they are crystallizations of something that happened repeatedly, right? It's something that happened to you over and over again. So again, part of what I want people to hear, part of what I want people to understand and why therapy is so healing is that it's the entire context of your childhood, not these events. If you had abuse, if you had a trauma and you were supported, the story wouldn't, it wouldn't fester. It wouldn't, it wouldn't it wouldn't be out there as this symbolic moment in your life it would just be something that you've grieved something that you have felt for something that you worked through so that quote that idea starts to suggest and teach the, the 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 idea that it's it's not the big events it's all the noise you know debussy said that that music is not the notes it's the space in between the notes and in a very poetic sense that's the way developmental psychology understands how human beings are built brick by brick. It's, it's all the stuff that happens every moment of the day. It becomes cumulative and starts to shape the person
1: into who they are. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about like the, the evolutionary process in terms of our relationships to our primary caregivers early on? Cause I think that per, that at least provided me a really good context of, of why we kind of shut that part of us out. Yes. Gosh, it,
0: it, the questions you're asking. Obviously, even your intro tells me that you're in touch with this work on a personal level. And I want people to understand the kind of work that I do and the kind of work that you do. It's only as effective as as much as we've done the work ourselves. So we have to have a personal relationship with this work. So back to the question, it's a really simple model to understand that if the child exhausts the parent, if the child upsets the parent, if the child frustrates the parent, if a child burdens or overwhelms the parent, you can think about this very objectively as a thought experiment. You can imagine the parent pulling away. You can imagine the parent retreating. You can imagine the parent taking their own space, self-medicating even, taking care of their own stress level. So the child learns from, a, from birth really we, we know this from birth that a child interprets the mother or the functional mother the child interprets the mother's frown as not mother is upset because there's no separation between child and parent but i am bad and it's yeah. illustrated very very commonly by by the the dialogue that if somebody says you know my, my my sister just had a baby and it's a really good baby everybody knows what that means it sleeps it cries very little and it has very few needs expressed through the through the distress response of crying. So we 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 from birth learned that good people have no needs. And that, that it, the implication is that if you have needs, you're bad or you're overwhelming or you're stressful. And so the child learns very clearly early on, it's a survival technique. If I want to maintain proximity to my caregiver, which is life-giving, if I want to maintain proximity to my caregiver, I have to manage my needs. Because if I overwhelm them, if I upset them, if I terrify them, if I frustrate them, they might go away and I will die. So that's how strong, that's why I, I can't stand when I see self-help uh, authors and, and speakers simply tell people what to do. When they say things like, you know, your fears no longer serve you, or, you know, just be vulnerable, or, 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 or be open with your feelings, those kinds of suggestions, those kinds of imperatives. The struggle that i have with that is that deep down inside there's wiring deep down inside there's there's real conditioning that shows up physically in the brain that says that if i do that if i walk into therapy my therapist says what scares you what upsets you what what hurts you that you're asking me to revisit not just a moment in time a specific event or what happened to me this morning you're asking me to to visit a nightmare and a threat to my to my existence to my existence yeah. So that's the connection, is that the child becomes good. The person becomes good as a child insofar as the parent is overwhelmed to maintain proximity to the parent. Otherwise, the threat is existential. And then we go out in the world and we wonder why we're pleasers. We wonder why we're pleasers to our friends, to our cohort, to our teachers, to our bosses, to our spouses, especially during the early, ages, early stages of, of courtship. And then eventually to our children is because our brain has been hardwired to be good. Have few needs to make sure that the other person is okay. Otherwise, it triggers that, that 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 dread response that we have that we won't survive it.
1: Yeah, and I think this is where it's it's so important for for you know everybody to understand this because everybody was affected by this. I mean, yes. me as a father of three, like I mean, I, I think about it now cause, all the time because I understand this stuff more and more every day, but like. There's, there's so many times where I come home from work or I got stuff going on and I want to be fully attentive to my children or I should be and I'm not because I'm so – I'm frustrated or I'm stressed and like – and, it, you know, this, this isn't something that that only happens in dysfunctional families. Like this is, this is how we all developed – to some extent on the spectrum and we all have these wounds and and I just I feel like this this type of understanding is so valuable because we don't we don't look at our current life or our current situation being kind of the end not the end result but but the the culmination of all these little processes that were happening from the time we were born. Right um right. And I think if, if people understood that um, and understood more of why they do what they do, they'd, we'd be more inclined to engage in things like therapy and in these processes.
0: You know, I was just, I mean, I could, I could speak to this in, in, from so many perspectives. I just saw a quote of, of uh, a thought leader, not in psychology, but in the world the other day. And he was talking about how the world is such a selfless place, how, how people are, are so uh, characterologi- compromised characterologically, and how we need to get better. And, and that's just not enough. It's the kind of compassion you were just speaking to. If, if your, your wife, or, or even more importantly, you, and the way that you learn how to do this, by the way, is by somebody else by, by having a therapist sit with you. Yeah. If you could look at those moments when you come home and you feel overwhelmed, with compassion and understanding, if you could look at those moments where you feel afraid to open up, afraid to be vulnerable, um, if you could look at those moments when when you have a, a a reactive response with compassion, if you could see the little child in there, and that's really my goal as an individual and a therapist is to see the scared, hurt little child inside of there and have compassion on that, we could truly heal. But because we're so focused on behaviors, because we're focused on doing good being a good husband being a good father being a good therapist or, or friend or, or child um, we continue to to shame the child for its immature ways of acting out for its ways of, of reaching and screaming for for attention and for its needs to be met and so one of my favorite quotes of all time this might be a little bit of a leap is from a a, a contemporary philosopher by the name of charles eisenstein and charles eisenstein said that evil is not the cause evil is the result in life and this idea that that what happens to us and 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 in this conditioning way that we're describing that leads to and I'm going to use these in air quotes evil that leads to the symptom that leads to the disorder that leads to the reactive or abusive behavior in the individual but underneath all of that is a scared little child who doesn't know how to get its needs met or can't get its needs met and we're so afraid to show compassion i remember i was working one time with the father of a mass shooter who who suicided at the end of a mass shooting and at one point during our discussion as i was helping him with some of his work in writing i offered a compassionate statement toward his son about how hurting and scared and wounded he must have been and the father got so rageful in that moment because the moment that you show compassion towards somebody who's who's hurt people, and that that's significant, what he did, it brings up this rage in us. It brings up this anger. We've been conditioned to be angry toward our symptoms. We've been conditioned to be angry toward other people's symptoms, because in the moment, anger, intimidation, shame manages the behavior, but that's not a healing process. And so, as you describe your own process that everybody has, one last thing I'll say, and you know how I talk, and I do this all the time. Yeah, go. But but um. When you talked about it's not just in dysfunctional families, that's the corner that I think people turn when they get into their work. I always said to, to young people that I was working with, when, when, you're, when you're healthy, you see the similarities between yourself and everybody else. The healthier you get, the more evolved, the, more, the larger you become. You see how you are similar to everybody else. The less evolved, the, the less healthy, the, the less healed you are, you see differences. So when you just said... It's not just in dysfunctional families, but everybody deals with it. That's a sign of your own healing. And I'm not sitting here. I didn't come on here to just compliment the, you the entire time, but I, I wanted to point that out because it's important for your listeners to hear that everybody deals with all of this stuff. Mental health and illness is a continuum and we are all on it. This, this, this idea that it's, that it's the, the discrete line that we draw, that's an illusion.
1: Yeah. I'd love to hear your kind of description of of what the therapeutic process looks like uh-huh. um, and 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 to piggyback off of that idea of mental health mental illness or whatever it falls on a continuum and we all right. have it to some degree um, you know I, I really would like to my intention of this episode was to get people to think, more about the therapeutic process and how it could fit into their lives. Right. Um and why it would be of value. So, can you talk a little bit about the therapeutic process in general, the the ther- the you know, finding an adequate therapist, what the value in therapy is and what, you know, over your years of experience and expertise, what what you've come to find is the is the Kind of best dynamic for that to take shape
0: you know the simplest way that i've heard it said to, to begin is the therapy is the childhood or the life that you never had and the therapist is the parent that you never had and so what what attachment based therapists like myself psychoanalytic psychodynamic therapists um depth psychologists understand is that we heal people in the same way that they were wounded, and that's in relationship to a significant person in your life. So you sit across from a therapist and you show up. The first part of the process is usually you show up. In fact, that, I should say that the process is always riddled with this, but you show up trying to impress the therapist, that you're a good person, that you're, <laughs> that you're not that bad, and that you have some great qualities. And eventually, either comes out unconsciously, or you confess what my therapist calls your horrible rotten self. You know, when somebody says to me in therapy, I know I shouldn't feel this, or I know I shouldn't say this, but I know I'm about to get something real. So therapy is a place that you go where you can't get it wrong, in my, my way of thinking as the client, where you show up as you are and the therapist loves and understands and supports that process of becoming who you are over and over again. And we're terrified of becoming who we are. We think if we become who we are, that we'll be out of control. And it does go that way that's why midlife crises look the way that they do that's why Brene Brown said in her first talk, I was going through a a, a mental breakdown and her therapist said it was a spiritual awakening therapy is an experience where you get to be yourself. And i'll just say that I learned from sitting across from a therapist who could sit across from me and my horrible rotten self for so many years and after a while, then I could sit with myself so then very simply put when I do something. To one of my children or or to my wife or to a client for that matter when I make a mistake from a place of fear or or hurt or shame or guilt which happens now and again for all of us when I do that, I can sit with myself, I can see the wound I can see the fear, I can say i'm sorry to my wife. My biggest trick hack I suppose uh, for, for finding a good therapist is when you tell the therapist what you do or don't like when you tell the therapist you're unhappy, you share some unpleasant feelings with them about them, and very simply put, if they respond essentially with, thank you for telling me that must have been scary, must have been risky for you, I appreciate knowing what you feel, I'm so glad to hear it, you know you have a mature adult, what I call adequate therapist, if they defend it, if they re-explain it, if they show you how you misunderstood and they want to clarify and make it right, then you know a therapist You have a therapist sitting in front of you that hasn't quite worked out their own ego, their own maturity, their own adulthood. So that's my hack for finding it out is eventually get to the point where you're talking to the therapist and you're you're discovering in that moment. Have they grown up? Have they done their work? Are they managing their own ego? Or do I just like in childhood? Do I need to take care of them? Do I need to feel and think certain things so that they are okay? And that's the reparative experience you sit across from an adult who's capable long enough. And all of a sudden you start to understand, I'm not bad. I'm not wrong. I'm just a little kid with broken parts that need my attention, that need my love and need my compassion.
1: I love that. There's another quote that I want to read because this kind of ties into the um, you know the developmental side and, and kind of how we push down our emotions and we learn how to do that. And I think this is really cool. It it, it spoke to me, um, and I don't know, I think think this was in The Journey of the Heroic Parent, but this is a quote from you. It says, When I signed up to be a therapist, I thought it was my job to make people happy. I was good at listening, offering insight, and presenting my unique perspective to family and friends. I was good at solving problems. I thought these skills served me in being a healer. Not only was the notion that I was going to fix what others couldn't fix in themselves self-centered and arrogant, it was diametrically off course. Like many of us who enlist in the business of helping people, I was ready to solve the world's problems and rescue people from their pain with my unique gifts. Then I went to school, life happened, and I went to therapy. I realized that my job was not to make people happy, but to help people feel sad. Yeah. Feel sad. Right. Can you talk about that more?
0: Well, I, I think so many people find it difficult to sit with somebody sad and pain and what I call today, so many people find it difficult to sit with somebody's unsolvable problem because so many things that people bring to therapy are unsolvable. You have a child who's an addict and, and from your perspective, that's unsolvable. You know, you, you, you can't... You, you can show up in a healthier way, but ultimately, you can't fix somebody struggling with addiction or depression or anxiety. And so, part of the idea is therapy the master therapist prides themselves on what they don't say. Therapy is much, much more about listening and what the analysts call containing than it is about talking. Yes, there's talking. Yes, there are skills. Yes, there are perspectives that are shared, but fundamentally, this is a safe place where you get to feel whatever you're feeling. I, I, I teach therapists that, that when somebody comes with their sadness, when somebody comes with their hurt or, or their grief or their shame, that's not pleasant. Nobody likes to feel those things. But people walk away, if, if, you, if you're doing therapy adequately, people walk away with the feeling of, I'm not alone in my suffering. And that's really all we can offer each other. Because suffering is inevitable. Suffering is a part of life. It's a part of love it's a part of of relationship it's it's inescapable but but we don't have to do it alone so for me the idea is you learn to to sit with somebody in their unsolvable problem in all of their feelings you offer them support you offer them compassion you offer them your presence you stay quiet and you wait um and you wait and you wait and that what looks invisible to people I was just writing about this yesterday What looks invisible to people is the healing bomb, is that presence of an empathic, capable adult other who by their mere presence and ability to contain shows you that it's okay to feel, that what you're feeling is important. And then then you move through it, you grow, you integrate it, and you become a larger person after having sat in that kind of a context, especially over a long period of time. And therapy, as you know, I talk about this, I don't have a model where therapy fixes you in eight sessions. For me, therapy is a process that lasts years and, and maybe the rest of our life, and not because it's work, not because we're sick, but because it, it just like exercise or any other healthy practice is a part of maintaining a healthy human life.
1: Yeah. Out of respect to our kind of listenership, in terms of you know gray area drinking and yeah, and people that are curious about you know whether or not their alcohol consumption um, is self-medicating or if it's, you know, quote unquote, taking the edge off, which, you know, could arguably be a form of self-medication, um, you know, healthy forms of alcohol use, if that's such a thing, but can you kind of, just from your experience working with families and, and, and adolescents and young adults, um, that do self-medicate what what's your kind of take on that and and where our society may be as a whole in terms of the social acceptability of alcohol use can you kind of talk about your own views around that and and where you think you know what you know we need to hear or learn that could maybe help our lives you know help us live healthier lives in terms of alcohol
0: you know, uh, I was doing a training six or eight months ago, and at one point, one of the therapists I was talking about some of the things, same things I'm talking to you about today. One of the therapists asked me, and they said, "What if the, the client says that cocaine is their self-care? How do you challenge that idea?" And I said, "Would you like me to hear how I would respond to a client who shared that with me?" And he said, "Sure, if that if that helps to illustrate." I said, "Yeah." If a client came to me and said, I'm gonna, you know, cocaine is the way that I that I take care of myself. It's my self-care. my response to that client would be, let me know if it works. Because the goal is to become yourself. And and I remember when my therapist, when I was going through my 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 biggest of my, my midlife crises when I was around 40, I remember my therapist saying to me one day, now you're just spending time in life. Seeing what you like, seeing what works for you. I think everybody self-medicates. It's 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 important to self-medicate. Yeah. It's it's a matter is does that medicating behavior become compulsive? Does that medicating behavior prevent uh, important aspects of your development, your, your physical development, social development, your career development, your relationships? Does that attack the body? It's what I talk about today, more than anything, when I'm teaching people about this question. And they talk about this in AA, but somehow it doesn't get out of AA and into the world, which is whether or not somebody else is an addict or an alcoholic is none of your business. I don't care if it's your child, it's none of your business, but people want to identify an individual as an alcoholic or an addict because then that justifies their boundaries. But that's because they haven't done their own healing, right? because we learned from Codependence Anonymous that you're allowed to take care of yourself in ways that feel good to you, that no is a final sentence, that you don't have to justify your boundaries, that you don't have to be good or right, you just have to be yourself. So for me, your your model, your mission, the way that you talk about it is beautiful because it really does model for people a healthy relationship with others. As a therapist, I don't make determinations about when my clients qualify for for the diagnosis of addiction, substance use disorder. It doesn't matter to me. It's yeah. irrelevant to me. me. Neither. Everybody's doing it, some kind of self-medicating, and you get to decide. You get to figure your life out, and I'm here to support you to figure your life
1: out. Yeah. To me, it's just it's a matter of function. It's like, does it work? Is it getting you where you yeah. want to be? Is it getting you where you want to go? And I think that the, these conversations are so important because there's so much shame and stigma around that that you know, label of alcoholic or addict or problem drinker or whatever the hell you want to call it. Um, and I think if we could strip some of that away and, and, and be able to allow people or create a space, and that's kind of what we're doing with this podcast is, is hoping to, you know, have more conversations about the functionality of it instead of the pathology of it. I think the labels give us a certain kind of
0: comfort there's an idea in psychology that we understand that when people are stressed, they, they reduce the world to, to black and white. They reduce sure. it to either or they make the world polarities, good and bad, us and them. It's called borderline functioning, which is different than borderline personality disorder under stress. Everybody will, will get to that level where everything needs to be simple and identifiable. So I think we like the labels because it gives us a, a, as strange as this sounds, it gives us some sense of control yeah it creates and when the world when the world is gray it feels overwhelming but that's what the that's what our growth shows us is that the world is when we watch our movies when we read our stories we realize the hero is not all good and the villain is not all bad and we're asked to incorporate that idea into the psyche through these stories but these labels these these definitions these lines that we draw around people give us this artificial sense of control and safety in a world that feels scary and overwhelming to us and that's the psychological function of the discussion around the 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 identification of somebody's addiction or somebody's mental health um diagnosis that's where it comes from it comes from the functioning of people In, in in psychology it's nice shorthand between professionals but it doesn't help the client and for lay people to be doing it with their family members and i've done it myself it's just a way of making the world simpler and safer reducing it to something manageable
1: so I want to I want to talk about Evoke, um, but first I want to talk a little bit about your podcast mm-hmm. and and how that came about. And I want to blast it out. You know, we're gonna put it in the show notes and stuff. But I want I want you to I want to know what the the your kind of like intention was when you started that out. I mean, you've been doing it for what fifteen years. You got like six hundred something episodes, um, maybe more. But like, wh- Why did you do that? Back in 2007, uh, I had a parent that I had
0: worked with came to me and said, your, your, your phone calls, our phone calls, weekly phone calls, where you're teaching us about mental health, about parenting, about diagnoses, about symptoms, is so helpful. It would be nice if you could just get that out, and I imagine you're saying the same thing. So a parent was the one that suggested, it. and at first we started it as a, a webinar. So on the birth of my daughter, December 18, 2007, my youngest child. I did my first my, my first webinar Then people came along a few years later and said, I want to be able to listen to this in the car. I want to be able to listen to this while I'm walking. So I just found a friend who helped me translate those webinars, those broadcasts that we did for our live families to the podcast format. Um, what I want to accomplish with the podcast is I want to immerse people in a certain kind of thinking. Einstein said that we cannot solve a problem at the same level of consciousness that it was created. The, 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 the artist muse, Rick Rubin, I don't know if you know Rick, he just released a book called The Creative Act. He's a wonderful muse for, for artists to help them find their, their 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 best art, their largest art. He talks to us about this idea that we have to raise our vibration. So part of what I'm doing, I'm teaching some skills, right? I'm teaching some concepts, but really, especially during the Q&A, which is every other time, i'm trying to help people get into another level of consciousness i'm trying to raise their level of consciousness uh joseph campbell said that the the purpose of myths is transformation of consciousness that's much deeper than just a couple of skills or uh, a lot of the theories offered today it's a different way of thinking he suggested that the prophets weren't talking about the future or the past they were talking about levels of consciousness so my goal in the podcast is to get people thinking about things in different ways, to get think, people thinking about things in larger ways, in a broader context, and to understand. Because psychotherapy and psychoeducation for me I was just reading about this from a book from, from Carl Jung last week um, there's no generic answer. There's no generic technique. There's no "What I might share with you wouldn't apply to the next client tomorrow, or even to you tomorrow. Right. We're always evolving. We're always growing. And I think when people take a certain idea or concept and they say, I'm going to, I'm going to live by this, uh, I'm going to offer this to my clients. I think they're missing the point that this is, that life is an organic art that kind of just flows. And so for me, the podcast is a way of helping people. And I want to scream it from the rooftops, just like you said earlier. Um, It's a way of getting people to think in deeper and richer ways. And I love it when people say to me, they love the question and answer because I get asked a question live or some of them are sent in and people will pause the podcast and they'll, they'll try to answer the question themselves. Then they'll press play and then they'll compare their answer to mine. So they're learning new ways of thinking. And that's really the goal is to teach people to think that's what Socrates said. He says, I can't teach anybody anything. I can just teach them how to think. And then that might be a lofty comparison, but that's my goal also.
1: So tell us about uh, you know journey of the heroic parent. I know I'm I'm sure I'm assuming that that kind of came out of the same context as the podcast and you wanting to pass that information down. Tell me about I'm I'm interested in both titles. Oh yeah. You know well, why the journey of the heroic parent? Because I know you well enough now to know that there there was some deep thought and meditation right. behind the choice in words for both of them. Um, tell me about it.
0: The Journey of the Rogue Parent is borrowed from Joseph Campbell, a philosopher and mythologist who who studied and knew more about myths than virtually anybody who's lived. And what he discovered, what he decided was that all of the myths are telling one one story. And that story is the hero's journey, where the hero has some kind of awakening or some kind of crisis, something they need that they can't not do. And they go out searching for it. The Knights of King Arthur went out looking for the Holy Grail, for example. And often in these hero journeys, I always use Rocky, the first Rocky as an example, the hero doesn't get what they sought after. Rocky didn't win the first fight. The knights of King Arthur didn't find the grail. But what happens to them on on their journey is they are transformed. They become different people. They have experiences and adventures that change their lives, that, that, that bring up a deeper version of themselves, a more authentic version of themselves. And then the final aspect of the hero's journey is they come back to the community and they tell that around a round table. right? They come back and they share with other people like you're doing, like I'm doing, like a lot of people in recovery and in therapy are doing. You're sharing your wisdom of your journey. But often it's this idea that we don't get the thing that we were looking for. And so in the, co- in the, in the course of parenting, parents come to therapy with me and come to the podcast and come to my program. With the 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 understandable hope that they can fix their child and their self sabotaging self harming dangerous behaviors. And sometimes the work is amazing and, and those young people are transformed that happens often. But sometimes it's a struggle that lasts for years and sometimes forever, and so the journey of the heroic parent is the idea that the hero's journey is always inward it's always looking at myself. Yes, I might, you know, I might want to be a director in Hollywood. I might want to be a, a, a pro MMA fighter. I might want to, to, to become the best doctor heart surgeon that ever existed. That's the goal. But if we pay attention, if our eyes are open, we see along the way that we are transformed and changed. So the heroic journey is the journey inward, where the parent looks at themselves and understands, I might be a part of this problem. I might be contributing to the exact complaint that I have. I might have something to look at here too and that's why even people sometimes get a little bit put off by the the word hero in the title but when i explain to them that the heroic task is to look at yourself they're like that makes a lot of sense so that's what that title is about yeah the audacity to be you especially the subtitle learning to love your horrible rotten self comes from my own therapy it comes from asking questions to my therapist about what i should do the 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 seminal story for me was several years ago. I was deciding whether or not I would invite my ex-wife over for Christmas because my older children would like to have her at the same time. And growing up, we would kind of switch holidays, but now the children were adults and I contemplated inviting her. And I was reluctant because it felt like I couldn't be myself. I couldn't wear my pajamas and wake up in a dirty shirt and just be myself and that it was going to encroach upon my space. So I, I, I went to my therapist and I said, look, as a father, I want to be there for my children. That's a value of mine. Um, they would love to have their mother over for Christmas so we could all be there at the same time. And so I tried to ask the question without the word should, but essentially I said to her, what should I do if, if, with those competing ideals? And she said very softly, she said, I think the task is just to be yourself. I think you should just be yourself. And I remember, I th- I remember thinking, oh yeah, that's it again so I said <laughs> no to myself nobody had asked I said no to my ex-wife I allowed myself to do what felt right for me and then like happened so often once I made that decision the next holiday that came around I invited her and she's been to every Christmas and Thanksgiving since and we have so much fun together but I had to arrive at that through my own self-reflection and self-discovery And and I had to confront the parts of myself that I thought were good or or, or bad, more specifically. So learning to love your whole, rotten self, I wrote this just this week. This is really, if I could say one thing on this podcast, getting healthier will feel wrong to you. Getting healthier for virtually everybody will scare you and make you feel guilty. So you have to grapple with your fear of outcomes and you have to grapple with your shame and guilt. Because those are the sentinels that stand in the way of your larger self of you getting healthier it, 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 it's there's no other i've never seen an exception to that idea so. learning to love your horrible rotten self is learning to become who you are, instead of being good in this way of thinking I write in it you don't get to be good anymore, you don't get to be right. That that idea those ideas are lost, but what you do get to be is you get to be a self and that is so much better.
1: I remember you saying that just reminded me of a quote. I don't know if it was on a podcast or one of your books. And it said that the, the, the main benefit or the main reason that you go to therapy or the importance of that relationship with your therapist is so she can carry your guilt, help you carry your guilt around setting boundaries. And that, that just reminded me of it. You know what's funny about that quote? That was my adult daughter who said that. Oh, really? I was
0: teaching a parent workshop in New York City. And I asked her, she's really, she's, she's finishing her PhD, and she's a great teacher, and especially at this, this exercise we call the three circles. So I asked her if she would come with me, I'd pay for her trip to New York, and she'd give me a break during this day-long seminar. And during her seminar, she stood up there while I'm present in the front row, and she said, I go to therapy, so like you said, I go to therapy, so my therapist can help me carry my guilt with me, can help me carry that, that, that heavy load. And anytime I try to break free of family dysfunction, I'm confronted with guilt. So I go there weekly so she can help me carry that. And I'm sitting in the front row as the parent expert thinking, where the hell she come off talking about me? <laughs> you know, I'm like, I'm like, wait, I'm right here. I'm in the room. But it's true. Breaking free of our family patterns, no matter how, no matter where you land on the continuum is going to bring up guilt for you. And so... She offered a beautiful poetic way of of talking about it and it's true I go to therapy I tell my story to my therapist she says. You're okay or I understand where you're coming from, I then feel okay and then I go back in the world and I tell the truth more I tell the truth about how I feel and I have been a liar my whole life. I have been a liar my whole I would not have said that, but I have told people my whole life what they want to hear what will make them feel good so that, again, I could feel belonging. I could feel accepted. I could feel like I fit in. I wouldn't be abandoned. And so the, the, the task of finding one person who can see you, if you find one person you can see, you, ideally, you would have that in childhood. But if you can find one person that can see you, you don't spend your entire life trying to get everybody to see you. And I've done that also. I've spent yeah, my whole life trying to get too. people to see, see how cool I was. But when I started to really heal the attachment wound, that need for everybody to like me to be to be my admirer, um, that need diminished greatly. And 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 now now I still have it, but it doesn't have me.
1: Really, what I wanted to hear out of this whole conversation was 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 something of that sort because I think that sums up our whole kind of deal, you know? Yeah, is finding a place where we can be seen and we can be heard and we can be ourselves. And through doing that, we heal. And, yeah. And yeah. Tell me about Evoke. EvokeTherapy.com, first of all. Evoke
0: is uh, started off as a wilderness therapy program for adolescents and young adults. So for about two and a half months, we take young people out into the wilderness. But, but that's not all, right? You know, Once we yeah. get them and, and they're safe and we start doing traditional therapy, but in the context of being outside, being in nature, Hiking and camping in small groups. When we once we do that, we involve the parents in their own work, and then we start to bring them together through through letters, through phone calls, through visits in the middle, visits at the end. So, in 1998, we started our program and we shifted from the identify patient model in this field to the family systems model. To this idea that you give parents tools, skills, insight, awareness, and you're giving the child something that will last the re- you know for many many years. That will that will be a wonderful context for them to go home to when they eventually go home so it's 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 nature therapy it's the same thing that nasa uses now we've learned nasa uses wellness therapy with its astronaut team teams because because classroom exercises because team building exercises that are contrived don't have the same impact but that 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 vulnerability that that dealing with the the mother nature as as the as the antagonist, that, that's the real lesson, the real teacher. So that's our wilderness therapy program, two and a half months, primary care for adolescents that are struggling with addiction and mental health dis- disorders. Then from that, it just kind of expanded. Then we started intensive programs. So we bring people in for four and a half, five days from Wednesdays to Sundays, and we do psychodrama and intensive attachment work. We, we do two pieces of work where people get to look at their past in very profound, powerful ways and then we ask them to look at their problems today and to see where the connections are and so when they come out of our finding you intensive program they're not finished but they know what the project is yeah they know what what needs to be addressed it becomes a, spare, a therapy springboard for new people or a therapy accelerator then we also have coaching that we offer virtually we have online parent we have online workshops for finding you we have family workshops, we have co parenting and couples workshops, but all of it is experiential. And all of it is attachment based and all of the intensive programs are run out of a an, uh, an inn that we have in midway utah just outside of park city it's one of my favorite things to do is to, to roll with uh, seven people for four and a half, five days and and just watch them get into their stuff and start to make sense out of their lives and start to start to experience because we show compassion, start to experience compassion toward themselves. You know, once, once somebody shows you that you can, that your symptoms and your horrible rotten self can be regarded with love and compassion and patience, you start to develop that yourself. So that's what that immersive experience can do over several days is give people a taste of that. And at the end of it, with all programs that we run, um, the goal is that the client wants more. They want more of that because it felt so good. Um, so yes, it's work. Yes, it's hard, but it's also
1: something that is sweet. Like if you could pinpoint the, th- the three top benefits in your life, um, of engaging in therapy, what would they be?
0: First and foremost is a sense of freedom. I feel free once I accepted. Once I started the, the task of accepting my horrible, rotten self and getting into recovery, from my codependency, I was free. Not because I was done, but because I, I I knew the the problems that vexed me were inside of me, and therefore I knew that I was the solution. Um, I think I'm a better father and husband, I'm a better family member because, not because I'm great or wonderful or perfect, but because I know that I'm not. That That's the thing that recovery has shown me is that, that um, not from a place of shame, not from a place of guilt, but uh, I know that I am an imperfect, fallible, numbskull, idiot. And I, I say that with love in my heart for myself, and because of that I can say I'm sorry, because of that i I can be open to new ideas i can engage in relationships more authentically and then lastly but not least it's given me the gift of talking to you today and working with people like you and working with patients and clients who need love i get to love people and because i have experienced the kind of love that i'm describing that, that we talk about in therapy because i've experienced that for so long with my therapist for 24 years in my own recovery from codependency, which is really just a pop psychology term for, for attachment wounding, yep. um, I get to love people. I get to love people that are struggling. I get to love people who think that they're, uh, they are unlovable. And that, the fact that I get to do that, I'm, I'm, I have problems, I have challenges, I have pain, I have worries, I have fears, I have all of that. But on a daily basis, the baseline of my joy, the baseline of my freedom and serenity is tremendously higher because of my recovery and i self-medicate less by the way i'm not in recovery from substances but my substances aren't a problem in my life because i don't need them because i feel that this i feel this healing energy that i'm describing to you
1: last power question dr brad reedy why do you care
0: because if i didn't i would kill myself i don't know if you can broadcast that or not but um When I was in my darkest place and I thought about suicide, the last effort in that dark place was to love and accept and forgive myself. And I did that again because somebody else did it with me, my therapist, Dr. Jamie Gill. And I remember a friend came up to me afterwards talking about a mutual acquaintance and saying how angry they were at this person because they tried to hurt me, something that they said. And I said, I hold no ill will toward them. And the person said, oh, well, you must be a bigger person than me that you've forgiven. I said, no, 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 It's not. I'm not bigger. I just realized that I've done so many horrible things to people. And I either have to kill myself, hate myself, or I have to live with myself. And I would rather live with myself. I would rather kill the part of me that hates myself. Kill the part of me that thinks that I need to live up to other people's needs. And once... Once I'm engaged in that project, I'm free. So I care because it's an extension of the love that I've learned to, that I've experienced from another person to myself, that I've learned to feel for myself. And it naturally, when you experience that kind of, I'll call it grace. When you experience that kind of grace, you immediately want to share it with everybody else. And that's why I do it. Can't not do it. Can't not do it. Thank you. Thank you. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are solely those of the host and guests and are not a substitute for medical advice. If you feel like you may need professional help, here are some resources. Visit Patrick
1: Balsley's practice, sauna Robbie Shaw's practice, eventide or visit the Blanchard